0: The Akkad and Coca Report, episode
1: 128. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics. Join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities.
0: All right. Well, today we have the pleasure of having Chen Wu on. Chen Wu is um, a friend of mine. He's a really smart guy. He's a neurosurgeon. Um, and specifically, he does functional neurosurgery. And he's coming on today to talk to us a little bit about uh, Elon Musk and what Elon Musk is up to. So Chen, start out. Tell me um, Tell me what exactly functional neurosurgery is and what it is you do.
1: Right. So uh, it's always a tough thing because... It's probably not the best name for a field because you say, you know, you do functional nursery and people are like, that's great, but it's not really descriptive, right? It's not like tumor neurosurgery or vascular. That's pretty self-explanatory. Functional neurosurgery is uh, aimed at restoring function, you know, as opposed to taking something out like a tumor or getting rid of an aneurysm or something like that we look primarily at restoring different functions to people where the problem may not be self-evident on an anatomical image or whatever that may be. So the things that functional neurosurgery primarily deals with are epilepsy, um, movement disorders like Parkinson's disease or essential tremor, um, as well as chronic pain. Chronic pain is a big one. Um, And then more recently, the field is spreading more into um psychiatric disorders well it's more of a pendulum it's there was a lot of psychiatric neurosurgery uh, decades ago and there was a lull and now more recently it's kind of coming back but that's kind of the realm of functional neurosurgery so a lot of things but um the unifying factor is a lot of brain computer interface uh, electrodes stimulators in and around brain or spine tissue
0: Right so I was um I kind of came into contact uh um, with uh, with what you were doing around the time I uh started as a cardiologist and uh and you know one of the amazing things that uh, that you, you folks do or at least what I saw you do a lot of was um taking patients that had refractory epilepsy folks that had seizures and you know they were on lots of medicines and they would still continue to have seizures And then and then finally, they would get to someone like you working with, you know, some epileptologists in the neurology field and map out, you know, try to map out where this focus of seizure in the brain may be coming from. And then and then some, you know, some highly trained smart person like you would go in and try to basically take out that focus. Is that is
1: that a reasonable explanation Mm -hmm. for that? yeah I mean that that's uh in a nut, in a nutshell right it it's uh it can be a highly complex problem, but um it's one of the most satisfying things you know, I think mm-hmm. epilepsy surgery has one of the best uh success rates in terms of there are not a whole lot of things in neurosurgery that you can say you do something and you cure the patient and it's not uncommon that we totally get rid of someone's epilepsy and seizures and they're seizure free for years to come and um that's one of the big reasons why I did functional neurosurgery is because of epilepsy.
0: Yeah. It's amazing stuff. The other thing that was, I guess, I guess it was when I was in med school. Um, I don't know. You were probably in kindergarten when I was in med school or something, but when I think that's when, that's when we started seeing these amazing videos of folks that had, um, um, uh, uh, par- um, Parkinson's you or, know, tremor, uh, you know, uh, tremors, tremor, yeah. right. Uh, uh, these significant tremors. Tremors that were so bad that they just, you know, got in the way of them doing anything. They weren't able, they right. were not functional. I mean, they were disabled because right. of this. And I remember, I remember in med school seeing these ridiculously amazing videos of before and after. So, you know, before these, these patients were incredibly disabled um, and then there, there, there was some brain surgery that would happen. And, Mm -hmm. and, and now these patients who were, you know, basically not able to walk or really do much of anything, feed themselves and you saw them, you know, almost cured. Can you talk a little bit about, about, you know, how that, how that happened and who, you know,
1: how that progressed? So it's a great story actually. Um, If you're talking about kind of the history of how that whole surgery came about, um, if you take, you know, a step back and look at the history of it. And people started doing surgery for movement disorders, whether and primarily for Parkinson's back in the fifties. So at that time, it was pretty coarse and it was only the most very, most severe patients. And the procedure in vogue at the time was called a pedunculectomy. And what it effectively involved was Making a hole in the skull, craniotomy, finding the brainstem and severing the cortical spinal tracts—the tracts that go from the motor cortex to the limbs—so that if you were paralyzed on that side, you didn't tremor. And that was done with, you know, some amount of frequency. Um, and the story, as it goes, is Irving Cooper is this neurosurgeon in New York who um, in the Late 50s, I believe it was, uh, was gonna do one of these procedures on a patient. And he got in there uh, and on his approach to the brainstem where he was gonna sever those nerves, got into profuse bleeding. And he ended up clipping the vessel and aborting the procedure. And when he went to go see the patient afterwards, he was rated to say, Oh, you know, I'm sorry, I had to abort the procedure and you know, I couldn't do anything. But what he saw is that the patient's tremor was gone, but he could still move his arm and leg. And then he started looking into the animal literature and what the anatomy was. And what he ended up doing was inadvertently injuring what's called the anterocorytal artery. And that serves the basal ganglia or the deep parts of the brain that help coordinate movement. And so he started doing this purposefully. And he did a series of about 30, 40 or so of these anterior cordal artery ligations and found very good results where some people still would be paralyzed, but a whole lot fewer than if you just severed the, the nerves directly. And then he evolved that into, instead of taking the artery because it was less reliable, realizing that the target was these structures in the basal ganglia and doing ablations with uh, pure alcohol. He would place a probe in to these structures based off of coordinates and do these very focused ablations. And so that gave way from alcohol ablations to radiofrequency ablations. And that's where the field of of uh, functional neurosurgery really took off with treating movement disorders and tremor. Um, and that's where it was until about the sixties in the sixties, you saw a huge decline again, because that's when cinnamon came about. Levodopa came about as a great treatment for Parkinson's. And so surgery became this higher risk option, and not until deep brain stimulation came around in the '80s um, did was it again revisited as an option for tremor. And so um, that's when it started climbing again, saying, "Hey, you have this method of inserting a a probe in. You're not killing the part of the brain. You're just stimulating it, and you're modulating the balance of how it coordinates movement." Um, and so that's what we've been doing since. And, you know, FDA approved for tremor since 1997 and, you know, over well, 200,000 patients implanted worldwide and growing.
0: Were the first studies done, was there an animal model of this ever
1: or how, how did so, this? Oh yeah. There were, so there were anatomists that were looking at this, uh, in animals, uh, non-human primates as well as rats in terms of looking at basic gang structures but the real thing that brought that together was this incidental uh, episode with Irving Cooper and that they were kind of doing their own thing figuring out the 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 pathophysiology of these movement yeah. disorders and then you know
0: right i'm just curious as to how how it progressed to you know doing this in in humans in a in a in a, in a wide way i mean so now what you're doing is you're taking basically large pro you know whatever probes and putting them into a certain part of the brain and then Not large yeah exactly i started to say large so then i backed up so you're taking probes putting them <laughs> in the brain and, uh, and 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 they're hooked up basically to uh, some type of a current generator correct and
1: right so it's like a pacemaker would be just under the clavicle uh, under the skin uh, that gets hooked up to wires that run under the neck and then those go into the brain
0: Right. And they, basically, do they, they, and they stimulate, what part of the brain are they stimulating?
1: So they stimulate either what's called the globus pallidus or the subthalamic nucleus or the uh, uh, ventral intermediate nucleus of the thalamus. So those are our three main targets. The thalamic target is primarily for tremor and the other two, the globus pallidus and subthalamic nucleus are really for Parkinson's.
0: And, and 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 they you provide current uh, uh, on a certain cycle length i guess or something or, or how do you yeah, so
1: typically you know a frequency of something in the order of 130 hertz with amplitudes of anywhere from typically 2 to 4 milliamps uh, you know um, pulse widths of like 200 microseconds is 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 roughly uh, sorry 200 is actually high now. We've actually backed off quite a bit and people are using shorter pulse width, 60 Mm. to 90 microsecond pulse width uh, um, stimulation. But if you have, but I was also very careful to, um, in my wording is that I said modulate these circuits because in truth, it's controversial. We don't know are with the electricity, are we um, activating neurons? Are we inhibiting neurons? know we're probably doing a little bit of both to different degrees and so that's why you know to be more accurate i say we're just modulating the circuit right and that that goes into one of the things is that we know it's, it's safe we know it works but we really don't know how it works still you know the true mechanism of what is the underpinning and underlying issues and you know this is what a lot of my research is about it's like why is what we're doing working and if we get a better sense of why we can probably get better. Right. Is this a,
0: I mean, these are the parts of the brain that, that control uh, move, movement and, and resting movement, or how, how would you describe what, what those parts of the brain do?
1: Um, yes. <laughs> no. um, it's, you know, it does, these circuits have been known to uh, basically they're, they're part of feedback loops that help refine the degree of motion, right? So that it's taking sensory input as well as, you know, and and feeding back into the amount that you're moving your hand so you don't overshoot something And it's So it has both these inhibitory circuits as well as these excitatory circuits to say, well, if I'm gonna go right, you know, poke right here, you know i'm not going to overshoot here or there right and so the cerebellum and in conjunction with the basal ganglia have had these cortical basal ganglia thalamocortical circuits that also have these cerebellar cortical thalamic circuits and these all interweave together into this very complex matrix that have been de- described in you know in animals and in uh postmortem studies but to so we know that they're there, right? But we don't know how is stimulation truly affecting them because it's very hard to study that in humans.
0: Yeah, but you're but you are essentially pacing that part of the brain, and yeah. for whatever reason we still don't completely understand. This seems to take away the, the 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 tremor that 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 is disabling for so many patients.
1: Right, right. So I mean, you know. To a degree, the the I mean the very um, the underpinning of Parkinson's is loss of dopamine in the brain, primarily. And there's a lot of other things, but you know, that's what it's viewed as. And so that loss of dopaminergic input leads to this imbalance. And the idea is exactly what you're saying is that we're thinking that we're restoring that balance, whether it be excitatory or inhibitory, to different parts of the network with this stimulation.
0: Oh, amazing. And 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 just to be clear, um, we went from this surgeon in New York to what you're doing now. There were, never was an animal model where you practiced on. You basically this was all done in humans, Chen. Or meaning, meaning the, the the initial DBS deep brain stimulators were they implanted in animals first? You know, or or did we go straight to humans because of? No,
1: I'm I'm pretty sure they were. So th- okay. so they were done in animals. Um, you know that I honestly. That is sort of pre the, you know, where my knowledge of the true history starts, right? And um, there's definitely uh, another history of stimulation in the brain, not necessarily for movement disorders, but for, you know, other things as well that precedes the, um, the human work. But it's also hard because we're also finding earlier human work than we realize, you know, case in point is that only in the past several years did we come across the work of, of this Russian neurosurgeon. Uh, she wrote everything in Russian, so it wasn't really well known. But after it was it was translated, we found out that she actually was doing some of this stuff, you know, a decade or more before we thought it was first done in humans. Right. So the the time course is a little hazy.
0: Yeah. So 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 interesting. Um, so. So that I mean, what what you're talking about and what you're doing um, uh, on a daily, weekly basis represents kind of like the the leading edge, if you will, of where functional neurosurgery is. So now comes some uh, a, a, an attempt to disrupt, as 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 many try from Silicon Valley and from no other than a man named Elon Musk, who seems to be seems to have um, uh, quite an appetite to you know make 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 the impossible. Uh, possible. And he's clearly done, you mm-hmm. know, amazing work in, in the realm of cars and SpaceX. Though I certainly have yeah. to point out that it's not that he, he didn't, in, he didn't invent the car. I mean, he basically took, took cars and made them, you know, significantly more efficient and, and you know, in right. a different mode. I mean, not to minimize what he's done. I mean, uh, clearly quite amazing to go up against, you know, what's the big three and create a new car company. And then suddenly, you know, uh, be producing these cars at scale. And of course, it's all, it's an all electric thing. And he's clearly, you know, changed the car, the car industry. Um, same thing with SpaceX, uh, though, again, you have to point out in SpaceX, he's done a lot of things, but he's kind of built upon, you know, kind of an existing architecture that, that exists. Right. Um, but, but, but no, he, I mean, clearly super, super innovative stuff. Um, and now he's, he has a company called, I think the company, am I getting this wrong? This company is called Neuralink, or the, at least the device that Neuralink, he's making. Yep. Is neuro, yeah. yeah. So what what do you, so, uh, you know, he 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 has been on Joe Rogan, which is a podcast that's a little more popular than the Akkad and Coco Report a couple of times, and he was on this last week. And uh, and he was talking a little bit more about uh, about the the Neuralink. And from what he was talking about, he's talking about, um basically a a a brain interface um so so an implanted device in the brain uh that allows for communication um and allows for many other things that he said in the uh in 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 the podcast um but tell me a little bit about what you understand of what he's trying to do
1: yeah so i mean um I think to start off with, you know, my, he's doing what he's done in other realms where he's kind of, he's again, building off what exists and making the technology better. And by, you know, there's no question that what he supposedly has created is technologically superior to what we have now. Um, But the gap that I see is, just because you improve the technology, does that necessarily improve the capabilities of that technology? So what he's doing is he's created this device that uh, consists of you know, 3000 over contacts on um, 96 electrodes that is implanted robotically uh, very precisely and has an uh, you know, interface that's much, a much smaller implant. And he's saying about an uh, inch in diameter, and um you know that's much smaller than a lot of the things that we have now um, the best comparison is the Utah array the Utah array is a similar microelectric array that's has the same intent and has been used in um, a couple big studies the brain gate studies those are the studies where utah rays were implanted in paralyzed people to allow them to control you know screens or uh, cursors or robotic arms um, and you know that whole endeavor is now a couple decades old you know the first brain gate study started i think it was 2004 2005 something like that um, but same concept is that you implant these electrodes you record Recordings from single neurons, so single unit recordings. And so you have action potentials that you're, you're, the electrical activity, the action potentials you're looking at firing rates. And then there's a lot of processing on the back end to detect the spikes, decode the spikes. And then the patient also has to be trained and train their brain to say, okay, you know, if I think this, that's going to be associated with. You know a certain spike pattern that the computer can pick up that actually ends up acting in a certain way, right? And this ex- this exists so, right now, Chen. Yeah. So brain. So like I said, BrainGate started. You know the single unit recordings started again in the 60s. You know, but the technology gradually improved, miniaturization, things getting smaller. And the Utah array is um, 100 to 100 um, 100 to I believe 128 uh contacts and that's what's been used in research extensively Uh, and you might use one or you might use two so you might be in the order of 200 some contacts and you're able to use that information to allow subjects who are paralyzed from spinal cord injury or stroke or ALS or whatever it may be to control these external things so that that work has been been there right so and that's the thing he wants to do first, right? He wants to replicate those studies, but with his device.
0: I see. Right? So and so the
1: big leap is that the the device is smaller, you know, potentially less invasive and et cetera.
0: So but 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 right now you're saying we have the capability through the Utah array of implanting a some type of a electrode or 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 some type of a electrode into the into a part yeah. of the brain which which will record signals and then transmit it to a computer. The computer can then interpret that signal and make yeah. you do something. So if you think something, you right. can make it happen in the real world. And that exists right. in some level right, right. now.
1: Yeah. I, was, I, I think I remember it was about 20, 2015, 2014. They got to the point so if you know it can control a robotic arm with six degrees of freedom. So people can use this arm to, you know, pick up cans and move things around, put balls in boxes, you know, uh, people that are otherwise paralyzed. Right. Now, certainly the shortcomings of those things is these are uh, big um, devices that stick out of people's heads and, you know, it's connected to this large computer off, uh, you know, that, that, you know, you can't really move it around and it's not, portable, right? And so that's these it. are experiments that are done in a lab, right?
0: Okay, so there's no clinical, um, th- this isn't yeah, that's, clinically that's, available. This is all in the research lab because of and, But it's in the correct. research lab, you're saying, because of some of these technological limitations and stuff. And so right. w- w- what he kind of is unveiling is, is um, a, you know, uh, basically this implantable brain computer interface, which is much smaller than what, mm-hmm. what exists right now. Yep. Right. Um, is he, um, so you know, his team says it's, he's developed arrays with a very large number of channels up to 3000 flexible electrodes, which can be implanted in the brain's outer layer cortex using a surgical robot. Right. Um, yep. uh, and it, it, so, it, and then he, oh, and this, and these electrodes are packaged in these small implantable devices that have circuits. They connect to a USB port outside the brain, which they ultimately hope to make wireless um so is right. so so the technological the technological breakthrough that he may have done is trying to miniaturize further and you know creating more basically electrodes that can be implanted yeah. in the brain kind of all, all at once so do you, so mm-hmm. so so pretty is it, that by itself was a pretty remarkable achievement i guess
1: yeah that that, that that's that's great that's a great leap forward right and so i have no qualms with saying that that's that's uh uh, that certainly has been a benefit because, uh, you know, you are having things that are more flexible, uh, potentially less damage to brain. Now he, that, this is where he starts making claims that are a little bit unfounded is that, well, you know, the other thing is a lot of my source of this information is that he released a white paper, uh, back in July as well, that has some more of these in further detail than what he may just discuss, you know, right. in his press release under uh, right. Rogan, but, um, but you know, that, 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 that's where, you know, where he says, well, if it's more flexible and thinner, it should have a less of a, uh, tissue reaction from the brain. Cause just like anything else, the body and the, the brain, just like resident body will try to wall off things and create scar tissue and so forth. Right. So that's where kind of the questions of durability and what is the response and so forth. Um, I haven't seen any. You know, I'm assuming he's doing those studies now, um, in animals, hopefully. Um, and but there, there's no data on that yet. So he he then he I mean he he then you know he he made th- th-
0: there are other claims um, uh, that he makes um, in terms of you know. Um, uh, you know how, like he talks about one version of the device where you would, uh, you know, this would be flush with your skull. You take out a chunk of your skull, put a nerdlink device there, insert the electrode threads very carefully into the brain, and then stitch it up so you wouldn't even know that somebody has it. Mm-hmm. That basically interfaces anywhere, anywhere with right. your brain. And then this is his last sentence. He says it could be something that helps cure, say, eyesight, like returns your eyesight even if you've lost your optic nerve type of thing. Mm-hmm. What, what, what is, what is
1: that? How does that work, or how could that work, or does it not work? <laughs> So, so, it's not so far-fetched. So, um, one of my, you know, one of my colleagues at UCLA, uh, Nader Paradian is a functional neurosurgeon there, and um, that's what he's working on. Uh, you, th- this is the, the, the field of functional is that everybody kind of has finds their little niche and pocket. So, uh, he has. Um, you froze a little bit. Are you? Can you still see me?
0: Yep, I can see you. Are
1: we still good? Yep, we're, yeah, we're still good. Example. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, so Nader uh, at UCLA uh, is, working, is working with a, uh, I believe it's a, a group or a company called First Sight. And what he's doing is he's implanting electrodes into the occipital cortex, the region that we know is responsible for vision. And he's doing this in blind patients. And then they wear a special set of glasses that has light sensors on it. And so that light sensor data then gets transmitted to the cortical electrode and stimulates in a certain pattern so that the patient then perceives whatever is coming in through the glasses. And you're talking about a resolution of, you know, maybe, you know, I, I, I he has the numbers, but it, you know, it's pretty coarse resolution. It's like big blocks of space. Right. 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 So it's like, you know, you won't walk into a bed or, you know, but it's not like you can see normally.
0: Right. Right. It has
1: gradients of gray color is a whole nother thing. It's, this is just purely light. And so that you can give someone that's totally blind, whether the damage is optic nerve or wherever, some semblance of light perception. Right. So that is also in existence, but to a, um, to a, you know, context of a much smaller, maybe, you know, 64 pixel grid, as opposed to something that's much larger.
0: Right. 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 Oh, that's, 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 that's amazing. So the, like
1: all, the, that's the thing is all these, these applications. The, the other thing he talks about is this epilepsy thing where it, you know, it stops you from having seizures. Well, that's exactly what the neuropace device does. That device is on the market and something that we've implanted right. lots and lots of Right. And by the way, it's a device that we precisely implant electrodes, hook it up to a battery that sits flush with the skull, and then records potential the brain signals. And if it detects a seizure, sends out a signal to try to stop the seizure. Right. right? So right, that, right. that whole sentence that he had about uh, that, that is exactly what the device does. But the disconnect is that, We've been implanting the device for years. There's, there's up of seven, eight, nine years in some of these patients. And you don't right. cure epilepsy with this device, right. unlike the procedures we were talking about before, where you cure patients, these devices for neuromodulation help reduce seizures by maybe 50%, right. 60%, which is significant, right. but it's, you know, and part of that is our lack of understanding of what are we really recording? What are the appropriate parameters of stimulation and, and all these other factors, right? Right.
0: No, I think he's, you know, he, he, I think he's clearly used to speaking in very uh, definitive things and, and just us being in medicine, you know, I think we're humbled <laughs> much more so uh, yeah. than he is. So, so, you know, when he talks about curing eyesight, it's like, my God, that, I mean, you know, when what you're talking about, the reality right. is, is that the best we can do right now is interface somehow into the part of the brain that controls eyesight and send some signals that will allow, uh, you know, allow kind of uh, light perception, know, at least, light perception to happen. And, and, you know, that's very far away from, from curing eyesight. You know, what about, what about quadriplegics? Is there, is it, you know, he says that, uh, uh, you know, you could restore limb functionality. If you've got an interface into the motor cortex and implant a microcontroller near that's near muscle groups, is that, is that, is that possible? Meaning, mean, could you like, so I mean, he's there, talking, there yeah, a lot how, of, what
1: does he, what does he mean? So there are a lot of, lot of issues there. Right. And so yeah. a lot of people have worked on this and where we where they've had success is, you know, implanting these to control some external device. In fact, right. you know, the, 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 we just got approved for a study with, um, that's being led by Misha Soraya, one of our neurologists who happened to be in the lab at Brown that was working on brain gate. And his major leap forward is instead of having this um, recording control an external arm is can this recording help with a uh, wearable glove that will then be able to help open and close the patient's own hand or you know arm or so forth? So that is getting a little closer to what you know the claim is, but you're also fighting the the typical biology of what happens with paralysis, right? If you have a spinal cord injury and you don't have that innervation of the muscles, those muscles atrophy and they get smaller very quickly, right? Um, so if you are have a spinal cord injury, you may be able to decode the signals, but you have nothing and you may be able to create a neural bridge, but we the, there's a big gap in being able to get those muscles to work properly now that they've atrophied and that happens very quickly. Right. And so there's a whole body of work, the group out at at Case Western has this um, big lab that works on how do we stimulate muscles and what are the patterns of signals that we need to stimulate mu- muscles in, in order to help fight this atrophy. And it, it's still a problem. It still doesn't happen. Right. right. So, how do you overcome that hurdle, right? That right. that's a big part of it is that, right. you know, the, so, you know, the other thing we've been able to get paraplegics to stand, just have enough muscle tone to just stand. That was a huge leap that happened five, 10 years ago. Right. And in about two or three patients, that's a group out in Kentucky that did that, but that's a big leap from standing to walking and yeah. doing other how, things.
0: How do, they, how do they make them stand? By, by it, with some type of neural bridge so, again? Or?
1: So it's, it's a slightly different approach. They actually do spinal cord stimulation, something else that we do for pain, but they're doing it in a subacute spinal cord injury where they stimulate in a different um, parameter space and they think that it helps with rehabilitation. So this is the, the realm of neurorehabilitation. So that you're kind of helping recruit that that regeneration, and so at most it's gotten people that are totally paraplegic to at least stand That was a big success right and so um, it's a different thing because instead of getting making a total bridge to actually activate the muscles, you're trying to regenerate the nerves or you know have that signal go naturally. Right. Um, right. so that's been work that's been going on for a while and they've done maybe, I think no more than six patients. And that's, you know, that's, that's right. the other thing. I guess it, it's, 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 it's going to be hard to get all the evidence and what we need right. to understand the human biology of what we're, how, of how these devices interface. Right.
0: But fundamentally, Chen, you're saying that if you, if you implant something in, Say the motor cortex in the brain, the part of the brain that control normally controls, you know, yeah. um, um, your your muscle movement, and then and then you also have some type of interface down by those by muscle groups. You're saying technically, it's feasible to create some type of yep. a bridge where you know you're kind of. But, but, but then there, then there's all these massive number of
1: practical hurdles that
0: have to be, right. have to be solved in terms right. of I how mean, one would I do think
1: that. the, the realistic, you know, the most realistic way that that can happen is that that bridge has to go from implant to a, you know, commercial or, you know, a prosthetic that, you know, people, patients would have to get amputated and get their leg replaced with this mechanical leg that can now receive all the input from the device right if, if he said that i'd be much more mm. agreeable like, yeah that sounds reasonable right that sounds technically more feasible than just saying oh we're going to implant this one thing in your head and your whole body will just pop back to life
0: right? right 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 because because even if you implanted something distal you know by the muscle groups first of all that's like i mean it's incredibly i mean we don't have anything close to like i mean i, I can't even figure i can't even imagine how we could organize something to get walking let alone like you know right i mean right. you have to be uh, I, I guess it's feasible but but you know the interesting yeah. thing well, you would need
1: yeah you yeah. would need actuators at each muscle each individual muscle
0: right at each level yeah wow yeah and i mean yeah <laughs> you've got your work cut out for you chen <laughs> this is like some 24-hour surgery that would would, would have to happen so right so yeah. I mean, so, yeah, so it's, it is, it is interesting. I guess it's, so what do you think? Is it, is it good to have a guy like Elon Musk
1: in this space? Um, I don't know. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> I think it's good in terms of having a new insight and, and a way to push the technology. And, you know, I've said it before about this uh, concept, but, you know, If he would be more open to saying, okay, I'm creating this technology for researchers in this field that have spent their life and decades and plus, you know, in this sort of research, here is my technology for you to understand how we can apply it better. That seems like a more productive way of going about things. It's certainly not as sexy as saying we're going to be able to talk to each other without speech in 20 years. I forgot what timeline he said. <laughs> um, but you know, again, and I think, you know, I tried to say in the beginning is that I think the technological leap is, is significant, Yeah. but the gap in understanding the application and the biology of it is so Best. broad that, yeah. um, Understanding how we can leverage this is, is, is it's certainly misleading to people that are listening. Right. 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 Because um, he, he makes it sound like. He, when he thinks there's a part when the interview where he, where he's, he's, he's. No, well, there's a part in the interview where he's, uh, you know, Rogan asks him about, you know, what's his expectation in terms of when this is going to happen. Right. And he pauses <laughs> and he thinks, and he said something along the lines of, well, with, exponential advancement, right? So he's talking about Moore's law. He's talking about the way that technology, when you talk about a computer or a cell phone or any of these things advance. But there have actually been papers about how brain-computer interface, BCI, does not follow Moore's law because it's not just the technology that needs to advance. It's our understanding of the biology, which has been slow. (laughs) Right, right, right.
0: No, absolutely. You know the interesting, the other interesting piece of this is that we've been talking a lot about functional surgery and people that have disability, um, and and in terms of interventions that we could do for them. And of course, you know, the 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 big other piece in terms of Neuralink uh, is this idea that uh, you could have this brain-computer interface that uh, makes us all super smart and allows us to communicate without speech and whatnot, right? And when you right. get to that, then you're talking about implanting. You know implanting a device in healthy people, and what's right <laughs> and you know so what, are the what are the issues what are the issues are factors
1: there right yeah so number one, and you know I thought it was interesting is that um you know before we get into the healthy people thing, right is that you're talking about oh, a whole brain interface I think he uses you know it's like a whole brain AI or AI symbiosis is he's what he talks yeah. about right yeah and um Rogan asked him at one point, Oh, would you just need one of these? Or you need multiple holes? And he kind of never answers the question, but the (laughs) upshot is that you would need, you know, multiple one of these placed in, if you wanted it, you need one in motor cortex on each side and one in, in vision and one in speech and one in memory. And, you know, and so you're talking about now, yeah, it's great if it's a small implant, but it can be however small, but if you need like 10 of them, it's, it's, it's a different, uh, ask. Right. Um, So that's one, one detail because really the problem we haven't overcome is this spatial resolution. the way I, you know, I love analogies, right? So my analogy for this is that, you know, he's created the, you know, ultra high def TV version of microelectro recordings. Right. But the TV that he's given us is it's not a, you know, 70 inch TV. It's a one inch TV right? So that one inch is really high resolution, but what good is it if it's this small, right? And so we just don't have a good way to sample multiple parts of the brain with that resolution, right? So that's kind of a big technological hurdle that still is yet to be addressed. But then moving on to what you're really talking about is the implanting in healthy people, right? There's a reason we implanted it in these paraplegics and stroke patients is that there's risk with any surgery. And when you talk about risk reward for them, it's worthwhile, right? But the things that we always talk about, I say it a thousand times, right? In surgery, our main complication, bleeding infection, bleeding infection. That's true with any surgery, right? Bleeding infection. And the thing that we always worry about, bleeding in the brain. So what if you had a bleed in a healthy patient in a normal part of brain, then all of a sudden you're doing this to help interface but now you create a stroke in motor cortex so you create a stroke in whatever part you're doing because you're now talking about implanting not only normal brain but what we call eloquent brain brain that has very important function right and so that is a big ethical issue not even to talk about you know things he starts broaching in terms of not in terms of just restoring, but making yourself better. Right. So what are the ethics behind that? Right. That, there, right. there are huge issues with that as well.
0: And I think, and I think, uh, um, so,
1: um,
0: and I think, and I think Elon, right. I think Mr. Musk realizes that because <laughs> at some point Joe Rogan says, are you going to get one of these things? And, and, and Elon's as well, you know, if, if it works. <laughs> so, so it'll be interesting to see who who, who gets trialed right. on these, yeah. on these well, maybe he'll give you maybe you know you'll get a free trip to mars you know for for trying this stuff so maybe that's how he will get his first uh, first group of folks to, to do this
1: but see i mean if you listen to it carefully right and because you know i looked at it twice I, I listened to it once I, I looked back at the transcript once um he is actually pretty careful with his wording. He's, he says, you know, when he kind of makes these far out things, he's like, it's possible or it could be feasible. And he does say that. Right. But if you, if you just kind of listen as a casual listener, you don't pick up on those things necessarily. Right. You're like, wow, he's going to do all this thing. Right. Or he says things like theoretically or, you know um, so yeah, a lot of these things are, Theoretically possible, they have been theoretically possible, and it's not that like this device is making it theoretically possible, right? It's, it is another step forward, but yeah, I mean, there's, it, it's, I, you know, I, I go from listening to it be like, oh, this is really cool tech, to there are so many problems with this,
0: <laughs> right, 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 yeah.
1: No, it seems, and, and
0: you wonder, I, I wonder, I catch myself wondering sometimes because it seems so far fetched to somebody who's in medicine. I'm like, am I thinking that because you know i'm like i'm like the big three uh when, when when you know they're talking about fully electric cars and they're like oh right. there's so many practical problems this is not going to be possible then of course he comes out with these cars that are clearly amazing and it's like i just i just don't get the sense that that's the same thing is happening here because i think appreciating biology is uh is super complex and i think he may have he may be in waters that are a little deeper than he normally, uh, normally swims in when he's, when he, when he gets into bio, you know, when he gets into talking about, mm-hmm. um, human, human, human biology and, and and how complex it is and how humbling, uh, you know, how humbling it's been for, for forever. So,
1: um, yeah. Yeah. But, I but mean, I, hope- I, I, every day feel like, yeah, I feel like I don't know anything about how the brain works. That, that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, exactly right well i hope well i hope that's mr. a drive musk, to keep learning and studying it, right
0: yeah exactly right well i hope i hope mr musk uh i hope i hope someone uh sen- sends him this video so that maybe maybe he can uh you know uh bring you on as uh his uh you know his team of medical directors <laughs>
1: i think that'd be fun right i think you know I, th- I think it's a this is the realm that i live in this is what i want to help push forward and i think a lot of the things are possible it's just um you know one thing that we need to touch it on touch upon is that my I, i'm i my background's in engineering so i also am fairly finite in the way i think about things as well right. and what are the right. steps that need to go and so sometimes that's good and sometimes you know that doesn't let me think about, Oh, what's possible 10 right. to 20 years down the road. Right. Right.
0: Right. Right.
1: But no matter how quickly it happens, those steps still have to happen. Right? right. And we have been progressing probably at a rate faster than I've, than I would normally think is possible, but it's still not as fast as, you know, how cell phones and all these things. Have right. Out, right? right.
0: Right. 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 All right, sir. Well, I've taken up too much of your time. I know you have a long day tomorrow, so thanks so much. And it's <laughs> uh, No, thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, so incredibly, incredibly information, uh, tons of information, which is super useful. So it's great. All right, Jen. Thanks. All right, Anish. Take care. Yep.
1: Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more, com.